The ability to self-assess competency is a crucial component of a healthcare provider, both during training and throughout a clinical career. The National Commission on Orthotic and Prosthetic Education, ENCO, defines competency as a specific range of skill, knowledge, and ability to do something, especially measured against a standard. Implementing competency-based education requires attention to the process of competency identification, competency components, competency evaluation, and assessment of the competency process. This process is fundamentally tied to the use of objective and validated measures through which competency can be assessed. Ultimately, curricula centered around such measures can lead to directed learning and growth, not just at the graduate level, but throughout a professional career. Hi everyone, I'd like to welcome you to episode 25 of ONP Research Insights presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetists. I'm Dr. Steve Garm, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. My guest today is Dr. Ashley Mullen, PhD, MSAT, CPO, who is my first returning guest on ONP Research Insights. You may recall that Dr. Mullen first appeared on this podcast in November of 2023 to discuss another article that she recently published in JPO. Dr. Mullen is an associate professor in the School of Health Professions at Baylor College of Medicine and the program director of the Orthotics and Prosthetics program. She completed her undergraduate degree from Rice University and her master's in athletic training from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Dr. Mullen earned her orthotic certificate from the Newington Certificate Program and her prosthetic certificate from Northwestern. While continuing to work at Baylor College of Medicine, she went back to school in 2016 to earn her PhD in higher education. Dr. Mullen lives in a suburb of Houston with her husband and two children. In her spare time, she enjoys finger skating. Today, we will be discussing a recent article that Dr. Mullen published in JPO entitled, Analysis of a Resident Competence Self-Assessment Survey. Welcome back to the podcast, Ashley. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So let's jump right into the topic here. And first of all, would you tell us why does this particular topic interest you? Sure. I think having gone to two different programs in the health professions, one in athletic training and one in orthotics and prosthetics, and doing two different clinical education pathways, I have a really deep interest in clinical education, the processes through which we do it and the ways in which we assess it. And so I, when I began working as the clinical coordinator for the residency program at Baylor, I realized we didn't have validated measures to assess student or resident performance at what was a very critical time in their training. When I learned about factor analysis, when I was getting my doctorate degree at the University of Houston, I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I really wanted to dig into one of the measures that we were using in the program to see if it aligned with those components, which form the basis of our educational standards and our board examinations. So what was the motivation for this study? First motivation was my dissertation. Uh, as this study in a, in a larger perspective was my dissertation for my degree in higher education. My other motivation was that our residency model requires an ability to self-assess. Uh, residents are expected to be self-directed learners across their clinical sites and rotations, ensuring they meet all their competencies, 
and letting faculty know and they believe they need additional instruction or experience in order to achieve those competencies. The assessment of the preceptor is obviously critical to that process. We didn't, however, have any internal instruments which were validated for the use in residency. And so I thought it would be productive to examine our self-assessment instrument, which was heavily based upon NCOPE standards and the ABC practice analysis. I also thought it would be helpful just to apply the process that researchers use to develop and validate clinical outcome measures in the educational context in orthotics and prosthetics. If we can't accurately assess our educational programs and the outcomes of those programs, how are we going to know if we're effectively preparing graduates? So this is a small piece of that bigger puzzle, but that was my motivation. Very important names there. So what was the purpose of your investigation? The primary purpose of the study was to examine the internal consistency, the sensitivity, and the structure of the self-assessment instrument that we were using. And we still do use. The secondary purpose of the study was to reduce the items on the instrument, but maintain the comprehensive nature of the assessment, that way mitigating the length of time and potential survey fatigue. So what were your expectations for the study? What did you think you were going to find? So I expected the survey to be sensitive to time and or residency experience. I also expected the factors to align with the domains of practice as the survey itself was structured in that way. So respondents were rating themselves on items according to the domains of practice. I did think we would find some heavy cross-loadings on some of the items, which seem to represent aspects of patient care that aren't unique to a certain appointment type or episode of care. And this hypothesis was driven by the fact that we've really been able to emphasize translatable skills in our residency program. The development of so many skills in residency is not independent to a particular device type as the residency standards are currently aligned. And so I thought we would see some overlap there. Would you please tell us about the self-assessment of competency survey that you investigated? Sure. The survey was a 29-item instrument delivered via Qualtrics, which is an online survey platform. The instrument asked the residents to self-assess their ability for each item within the six domains of practice. The anchors of the survey were on a one-to-five ordinal scale with one being very unable and five being very able. So for each description of a practice task or behavior, the residents rated their ability on that one to five scale. How did you go about collecting data for this study? The residents completed the survey after each of their clinical rotations. And at the time that the study was conducted, we had six clinical rotations, which made up the 18-month orthotic and prosthetic residency. The data was collected independently from this study, which was a retrospective review of that data. And I know you already touched on the part of this next question, but how did you go about analyzing the data and what did you hope to accomplish through your analysis? The first thing that we looked at was internal consistency of the instrument. And we used Cronbox Alpha to look at patterns of ratings essentially across the items and the consistency of those patterns every time that the assessment was taken. 
So through that statistical analysis, we were able to identify a few items which were detrimental to internal consistency. We also looked at the change in the scores over time by calculating a sum score of all of the items on the survey and doing a within-subject comparison across the six rotations to see if there was statistically significant change in that score. And finally, through a framework called Keynes Validity Framework, we did confirmatory and exploratory factor analysis to identify the structure of the survey and what are called the latent common factors or the characteristics that the survey was measuring. Confirmatory analysis is where you think that the survey or the instrument should have a, a structure given a specific framework, and you test to see if that structure fits the data. If it doesn't, then you can use exploratory factor analysis to try and determine what the structure is based on the responses to the survey. We use the ABC practice analysis criticality ratings and the evaluation of item construct to determine whether an item was appropriate to drop from the survey in that exploratory factor analysis process. And the reason we did that, as I mentioned before, is we did want to try and make the survey shorter, but still maintain the construct. If we identified an exploratory factor analysis that one of the items wasn't what's called loading or really associating strongly onto any of the factors. And that item, according to the ABC practice analysis, the previous one, had low criticality ratings. We considered removing it from the survey in order to shorten the, the length of the survey. So how many subjects did you end up enrolling in your study? So we included 72 subjects in our study, and that number was slightly different across the different analyses. Some analyses required that we had each subject complete each of the six assessments. And at the time of the study, the survey wasn't required. It was requested. It's required now. But we had 59 subjects who had completed all six surveys after each of their rotations. So what were some of the primary findings of your investigation? So we were able to see that the instrument had internal consistency. And it did demonstrate sensitivity to time and experience across the residency. We noted significant differences in those sum scores across quarters of the residency for the first 12 months. And while there was an increase in that sum score during the last six months of the residency, it wasn't statistically significant. Through factor analysis, we found that the survey didn't align with the domains of practice. And through exploratory factor analysis, we were able to reduce the survey to 15 items and found that the model that best fit that data indicated one primary factor was being assessed and three additional factors were also being assessed in the instrument. We looked at which items grouped together to try and determine what that factor was. And we named those factors device evaluation, patient-centeredness, regulatory awareness, and professional responsibility. So how did your findings lead to the refinement of the survey instrument? So I mentioned earlier that we used a framework called Keynes Validity Framework in approaching this work. I really like this framework because it incorporates statistical analysis as well as a, just an understanding of the context and the application of any given instrument. 
that's the beauty of the development of these measures. I think it's not just about the numbers. It's also about what the instrument means in terms of its relation to practice or the individual taking the instrument, the feasibility of implementation of the instrument, and what the potential implications are based on the outcome of the instrument. And we use self-assessments, I think, in healthcare a significant amount of times to determine depression, anxiety, quality of life, satisfaction. So it has its place within the educational context. We proposed revised verbiage of some of the items in the reduced survey, the 15-item survey, which mitigated some redundancy that we saw in the larger survey and also offered qualifiers for behaviors and tasks. And then finally, in looking at the anchors that we used, we suggested more behavior-based anchors. So instead of using the terms able or unable, we thought we could use anchors based upon supervision required when performing that task. There are limitations to that, as sometimes that supervision level is very dependent on the comfort of a clinical supervisor or preceptor. But we hoped those revisions could create a connection between the self-assessment that the resident was doing and the documented engagement level reflected in the case logs of the residency, allowing for some additional validity analysis. Were there any unanticipated surprises in your findings? And if so, can you explain them? Sure. One of the surprises that I actually received was not so much directly in the study as in some of the reaction to our findings. When I shared with some individuals that we didn't find that the survey aligned with the practice analysis, I was met with some criticism as the practice analysis is an outline of what happens in practice. And I realized that either I was presenting it in a way or there was understanding that perhaps I was saying that's not what happens in practice. But there's an important nuance to understanding the difference between our practice analysis as a representation of the skills or behaviors outlined in practice and the grouping of those behaviors in an educational development process. So the outline forms the foundation for our educational standards and our board exams. And I hope this work offered some consideration for just continuing to evaluate our standards, our assessment of competence, and ensuring that it's appropriate. Did you encounter any notable problems in the course of your study? And if so, what would you have done differently? Yes, this was a retrospective analysis. So we're relying on data collection without having any control over the process through which that data was collected. And I do think survey fatigue and potentially the Dunning-Kruger effect played a role here. So if you're not familiar, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect is the idea that low performers tend to overrate their abilities and high performers tend to underrate their abilities. Ultimately, this study would have been stronger with an objective measure of resident performance tied to the self-assessment. Now that we have reporting of individual board exam scores and we have employer evaluation of these skills in our graduates, that's another way that we could correlate the self-assessment scores to continue the validation process. I also, and I mentioned that we continue to use this instrument Factor analysis requires a large and robust data set, and it's very sensitive to interdependence of the data. So we had the same residents rating themselves multiple times. In this study, we only used a data set after the first rotation to evaluate the structure of the survey. I would love to 
do something differently next go around, which would be to use more of a nested design in our modeling to account for the repeated application of the instrument across the residency for a little bit of more of a robust analysis. So what are the main clinical takeaways of your investigation? I hope the key takeaways are that we need to evaluate and continue to build self-assessment skills and instruments to help refine those skills in our training programs. We, as a profession, and this is not unique to orthotics and prosthetics, we need clinicians who know where they excel and know where they have limitations. That's going to drive their patterns in seeking continuing professional development and continued education throughout their career. That's going to improve patient care and the reputation of our profession. We also need to dig into our educational frameworks and assessment tools in order to ensure we're assessing students and residents in a way that reflects growth over time and their preparedness for practice. And for the benefit of those listeners who may be thinking about jumping into this type of research themselves, do you have any recommendations for future research directions based on this work? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think residency programs can work together to evaluate the shortened instruments or develop instruments which they think might be useful. This is a process very common in educational programs where we develop rubrics and tests and assessments. The separation of residency from academic programs can sometimes limit or create barriers for those types of analyses, but I know that folks are open to this work. In fact, shortly after finishing my dissertation, I reached out to the hospital-based residency group as part of the academy and asked if individuals in that group would be willing to pilot the shortened survey in their residency program, so offering a more generalized respondent pool than just one program. They were very willing to help out. And unfortunately, I stepped into a new leadership role over the following year, and I wasn't able to keep up pace on that project. However, I am looking at returning to that and recruiting some folks who may be interested in piloting it in the future. Very nice. And again, you said this was part of your PhD dissertation. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Very nice work. Excellent job. We've come to the end of our podcast, so I'd like to thank Dr. Mullins for sharing her insights and discussing her research with us today. I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on this project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of ONP Research Insights presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetists. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please plan to join us again next month for the Academy's ONP Research Insights podcast when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for ONP professionals. ONP Clinical Insiders, a podcast created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care, and the award-winning ONP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our industry.